Welcome to Threat Intelligence, tackling the cyber arms race in government panel discussion sponsored by KPMG. Here's today's moderator, Tom Temin. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guests today are Pat Flanders, the Chief Information Officer at the Defense Health Agency, Mark Johnson as Chief Information Security Officer at the U.S. Agency for International Development, and Tony Hubbard as a principal at KPMG. Good to have you all here today. And we're going to be talking about this ever-moving cybersecurity front line. The thing about talking about cybersecurity is that every week almost, it seems like a fresh new topic. And so we're going to concentrate somewhat on the phishing and hacking that is coming into federal agencies. And we want to talk about threat intelligence, how you're analyzing it, how you're adding that to the arsenal of tools already in place, which might be continuous monitoring and all of the other legacy tools that exist for cybersecurity. So Pat, why don't we start with you. Give us a sense of what is the array of threats that you find most threatening and what are the types of technologies and responses you have to it in place now? So the, the cyber threat, you're right, it's, it's a never-ending stream of ever-changing requirements. And um, to that end, you know, the way we collect that, basically any evidence-based knowledge that we can get from any source is, is what we use to, to analyze. And so that's working with other um, intelligence agencies like our DOD Joint Forces Headquarters for Cyber Defense and our own Cyber Operations Center. Vendors, we work with commercial partners and often they detect cyber threats and um, report them to us and uh, then a host of, t of automated tools. Yeah, so the tool, now let me ask you this, can the tools themselves, uh, which throw off lots of data, can they give a picture that might add up to cyber intelligence? Right, so uh, right now, I think we're in a period of transition. There are so many tools out there, and they overlap in some areas and in other places. Um, they're niche tools, and you have to aggregate all that information to make sense out of them. Um, I think where we need to go is with artificial intelligence to kind of help us use big data to um, better inform us and to mitigate a lot of the manual work that we have to do right now. And I, I don't know what others' thoughts are on that. We'll get to those. And just a quick follow-up, are there any particular requirements or considerations being the Defense Health Agency, which has that set of data that other agencies may not have about people? So, well, th there's HIPAA and, and the, the, the federal requirements associated with that, but the real difference has to do with medical devices. And so in other, in, in other verticals, um, you deal with things like uh, HVAC systems that are connected to the network, but with medical equipment, almost everything is connected to the network. And our particular case of the Defense Health Agency, we are in the process of taking over administrative control of, the, of all the services um, treatment facilities. Mm -hmm. And so with that comes great variance in the devices. And, um, Maybe later I can tell you about what we're doing specifically to kind of okay, isolate yeah. them. Excellent. And uh, Mark, tell us your situation and what kinds of tools you have in place and what you're looking at beyond the data produced by your own tool set. We, we consider uh, cyber threat intelligence to be actionable information that, that we get from mobile sources that will help us to um, create um, a more safe computing environment and, and to help us uh, as an agency at USAID to achieve our mission. We, we, we look at IT as, as an enabler, a very important enabler to achieving the overall mission of, of the US Agency for International Development. USAID is, is um, um, un, unusual for in, in a lot of aspects in, in terms of the federal um, community. Um, the majority of our people, the majority of our locations are outside the United States. We, we have about 80 locations spread around the world. Um, that, that gives us, a little bit of a, um, a different uh, attack profile and attack surface than, than a lot of the more domestically oriented federal agencies will have. So we, we receive mobile cyber threat intelligence, um, CTI feeds with threat actors, uh, IOCs, indicators of compromise, uh, related to tactics, techniques, and procedures, TTP, from various public and government sources. Um, we the public sources. 
Um, we, we receive o open open source intelligence, um, the, uh, and, and we also receive a lot of information from uh, DHS. Mm -hmm. um, we also we also sometimes receive information from our vendor partners. Yeah, you wonder, uh, I guess, sometimes how often you're getting the same information from multiple places. Exactly, and and, and a lot of the time, the, the you know the the effort is 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 to turn the actionable information because there's initially there's a lot of, a lot of noise high signal noise ratio on this is, is to work it down to what's what we really really need to act upon um, the cyber threat intelligence helps to strengthen our, our cyber security posture helps to strengthen our overall risk management posture and it, and it helps us to uh, maintain uh, a strong posture in terms of uh, our computing environment Okay, and uh, give us, Tony, the, the overall view. What are you seeing as the state of the art in terms of incorporating threat intelligence into, let's say, data produced by local tools? Sure, uh, well I think, uh, so one of the key points, certainly I agree with what Pat and Mark are talking about in terms of the voluminous number of tools that are out there, but I think one of the key points to that and is that gets lost sometimes with the tools is the people element of it. And I think what you'll find is no matter how many tools are out there, whatever the tool may be used for, whether it's threat intel analysis or whatever it might be, at the end of the day there still has to be some people there evaluating that data and making decisions. Uh, and, and going back to, to Mark's point, I think there's a key distinction between threat information and threat intelligence. And I think that's where the people element comes in in terms of uh, I was just in a meeting a couple weeks ago with the federal CISO, and the comment was that they have a very—they feel like they have a very strong th threat intelligence capability. But the one issue they have is a lot of the data that's—it's just information that's being flowed up versus intelligence, actionable information. And I think that's a key that using these tools and trying to get more mature with the process so that you can provide more intelligence uh, that you can act on or, or provide threat hunting kind of capabilities around versus just sharing information. One of the key concerns this particular CISO had is they continue to get email feeds from their threat intelligence team but nobody reads them because it's just one more email in the inbox so they're trying to come up with creative ways to share this information so that it is more meaningful and more actionable. So I think it's really that, that people element as a complement to the tools and kind of the, the big data. That certainly the tools can enable more analysis of the big data and all the data feeds that are coming in, but I really think it's that people element to kind of provide the, the more analysis around it. It's almost like the old police scanners that people used to have. It was constantly flashing and buzzing about something here, something there, this liquor store, that house, mm -hmm. but very rarely did it apply to you personally. And so I guess maybe it's kind of what you're saying is weeding out the signals that matter from the constant stream of information going by that everybody's looking at. Absolutely, and that's part, of, I guess it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword in that it's a good thing that we have so much data available, especially in the government sector, but how do you, like you said, how do you manage all that? How do you really synthesize that and make use of it in a meaningful way is a, is a significant challenge. And how does that data come into an agency? I mean, what are you looking at? You have intelligence feeds, you have data feeds, you have information and emails, so we know email is one source of it. But is there a single dashboard, or is it all coming to the network operations center? I mean, how does it work day to day so that you're aware of your situation? So I can tell you in the DOD, um, it's many operations centers, right? And so there's the one, the, the principal one run by JFQ Doden I talked about earlier. And then uh, we have our um, Defense Health Agency Cyber Operations Center. Because Defense Health Agency is a pretty big operation by itself. Yes, and we're about to get much, much bigger. So we're in the process of taking over the the service medical networks, right? Yes. And so um, we kind of are in a straddle position right now, where where we have some of them, but other parts of them are still with the services. And that over the course of the next 24 months, we'll complete that migration. Um, but multiple operation centers all talking to get to each other um, with you know classified. Uh, um, video teleconferences once a week, and these are 24 by 7. Mm -hmm. And coming into those operation centers beyond just the human communications is the logs and sensor feeds from multiple, multiple tools that um, the DOD on a whole uses, and then additional ones that we've added on. Yeah, because logs and sensor feeds, they're like the scanner going. There's always something. Mm -hmm. How does it get to your attention, say, something coming in from a 
to this analog mm -hmm. that might indicate an anomaly, for example, how does somebody find out about it? So we have um, intrusion detection systems as well as intrusion prevention systems and people that, that use these various tool sets to, to analyze those things. Yeah, so it's almost tools looking at tools. In some cases it is tools looking at tools. To produce something that someone can say, hey, we better button up this port yeah. or something. Various commercial tools that we use to collect the data, then other commercial tools that we use to analyze it, along with multiple different kinds of scanners, both commercial and um, Department of Defense derived. Sure, yeah, and how about USAID? And, and do you cooperate with state, too, you know, kind of the let's say not quite the sister agency, not quite the parent agency, but the relation, the cousin. Yeah, and, and just, just to tag on to what, what, what Tony and Patrick said, uh, great points. Um, at USAID, we have, a, we have a 24 by 7 team, by 365 team, that's dedicated to assessing information that comes in, uh, looking at um, indicators of compromise for potential impact, and determining the best course of action uh, to protect the agency and, and to facilitate uh, a um, secure delivery of our mission. We also, um, all federal agencies, including USAID, send information via the federal da to, to the federal dashboard via the DHS Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation Program. Um, the output of that dashboard provides a holistic view of the hardware and software vulnerabilities we have on our network, as well as what, what all agencies have on their network. It helps us to determine the agency cyber risk level and provides DHS with, with a view of what's going on at USAID, what's, what's going on at all, all agencies throughout the federal government. So we, we find that's, that's very valuable. Um, we we, are, we um, do do some work with state. Uh, it's, you know, we, we, we probably cooperate with them more, more closely than other agencies and so forth uh, because, of the, because of the nature of the work we do and because of the fact that we're, uh, in, in, some, in some cases around the world, our, our folks are, are co-located with, with uh, state facilities. Sure, in fact, I spoke with someone from uh, USAID that I think exemplifies this, running a major program involving, well, it touches potentially 600 million people in Africa, and the person is based in South Africa and is dealing with many, many private entities, dealing with many, many governmental entities, both national in Africa and local in Africa, plus the U.S. So. I think that kind of illustrates the complexity of the situation sometimes for someone that's got 80 locations around the world. Absolutely. What are best practices, Tony, for, for operationalizing, I shouldn't say operationalizing, making actionable the type of data and all these feeds and these 24 by 7 operations? <coughs> well, I think a great leading practice is really linking in whether it's your threat intelligence information or just the broader cyber program into an agency's enterprise risk management program. I think what Mark was talking about is a great example. When you have that kind of decentralized environment, you really need a robust enterprise risk management program that can not just manage risks around cyber, but risks around other domains, whether it's financial management, acquisition, whatever it might be. And I think so, and it's certainly easier said than done, but I think having a real robust enterprise risk management program to kind of pull all that information, and, and the key would be to have that program support executive decision making so that you, you, you have all this information feeding up, in some cases highly technical information, and making sure that there's a venue and a mechanism for the executives of the agency to make informed decisions about how to react to that. I, I think that would be a, a, a very, and there's some, some agencies are, are, some, are better at that than, than, than others, obviously, but I think that would kind of be something as a goal to strive for to have that program in place. Yeah, and I guess along with the risk management kind of approach, you also need a decision management type of approach. And again, I'll make an analogy. If someone is in a building and there's a fire right next to them, probably you want that person to pull the fire alarm and not go up the chain of command. Mm -hmm. But there's probably other threats they might be aware of where maybe the on-the-ground operator should not or is not authorized to act. And so how does that work and you know, move up the chain? Who makes the decision to say we got to make this countermeasure to, to mitigate this threat. Yeah, absolutely, well, and that's certainly, well, well, I was gonna say Pat and Mark would have firsthand experience in terms of how you do that in a, in a day in and day out basis, whether it's overseas or in the DOD world where you need to make a, a decision in, in the cyber world if you see a potential attack uh, or a threat vector that you need to respond to immediately, you're right, you need to make that call. You don't necessarily have time, and I think that's where 
it, it's sometimes it's not the most exciting elements of cybersecurity, but the, the the training, the awareness, and kind of working through your policies and procedures to make sure that folks feel empowered and have the information they need to make those decisions. I think yeah, is so important. So how does it work? Say at DHA, because you don't want the uh, the dwell time of the threat to be extended by the dwell time of the decision making. Right. So you know, on the technical side, the tools are, are usually the first indicator, right? Um, and we, I, I think one of the keys is you have to have formal agreements through all your organizations, and especially with your contractors, right? Commercial contractors where you exchange data with, um, in some cases, uh, responsibility matrices to help with those. And in some cases, depending on the size, we actually will put people in, say, commercial facilities to help. So that if there is an incident, we get first-hand notice and we know exactly who to call. Um, so that's that's kind of the, the overall summary, I guess. Okay, we're going to take a quick break because I want to make sure that Mark gets a chance to answer that question. But uh, we are at a break point here. My guests today are Pat Flanders. He's the Chief Information Officer at the Defense Health Agency. And soon we'll hear from Mark Johnson. He's the Chief Information Security Officer at the U.S. Agency for International Development. And Tony Hubbard is a principal at KPMG. I'm Tom Temin. This is in your moderator. This is the panel discussion, Threat Intelligence, Tackling the Cyber Arms Race in Government, sponsored by KPMG here on federalnewsradio.com and Federal News Radio 1500 AM. Disruption waits for no one. So what exactly are you waiting for? At KPMG, we help government agencies embrace new technologies and implement agile operations to meet the needs of a rapidly changing world. We help organizations advance in areas like digital transformation, cognitive analytics, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and much more. It's time to turn today's challenges into tomorrow's opportunities. Become future ready with KPMG. Visit futureadygovernment.com. Welcome back to our panel discussion, Threat Intelligence Tackling the Cyber Arms Race in Government, sponsored by KPMG, here on federalnewsradio.com and Federal News Radio 1500 AM. My guests today are Tony Hubbard, a principal at KPMG. Mark Johnson is Chief, Tech, uh, Chief Information Security Officer at the U.S. Agency for International Development. And Pat Flanders is Chief Information Officer at the Defense Health Agency. I'm Tom Temin, your moderator. And before the break, we were talking about the decision tree and the decision matrix that happens. We heard about it at the DHA. Uh, Mark, tell us about how the decisions are made to act, who makes it, at what level, depending on the threat at the USAID. A lot of the um, work in, t in terms of um, uh, threats and, and risk analysis and so forth is, is, is done through, through, through processes and procedures. And um, it, that, that's because of what um, DHS processes have set up, um, OMB mandates, things like that, and, and also internal agency uh, processes and procedures at USAID. So uh, a lot of it's very much following a playbook and and and, and that mm -hmm. in, in most cases that works well and I want to I want to go back to a point that uh, Tony made because I, I think I think he hit on something really uh, really important here in terms of risk management risk management for um, any kind of cyber cybersecurity um, program is is vital and enterprise risk management is is really key I think it's one of those things as we move in the future I think we're seeing an evolution from um, the you know cybersecurity programs being looked at in isolation to being looked at as part of an overall enterprise risk management program. I know a lot of the OMB mandates have have um, moved agencies in that direction so that they they set up enterprise risk management programs. USAID has one. Uh, we we have an enterprise risk management council which on, on which I sit, and we we holistically look at at threat all kinds of threats. Um, you know some of the, some of the ones that uh, Patrick and Tony were mentioning. Um, not just cybersecurity threats, and, and so cyber fits into that, and, and we can evaluate as an agency um, from a strategic level um, our, our program and uh, 
the types of um, resourcing we, we want to do to it, and, and, and some of the future directions that we want it to take. So I think, I, I, I think as we, if you look at the private sector, they've, they've for years had a situation where if you have, you know, go back to the Target hack of six years ago, or go back to the Equifax hack of, of last year, these are these are things which um, move stock prices and 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 really have have a very strong effect on the public, all those folks uh, that are affected, and also on, on the institution that's been involved in that. And so um, that 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 kind that's forced the discipline of enterprise risk management, and and that's that's also uh, coming through government through through the OMB mandates. Right, so I guess the thinking is the cyber risk might be a risk to cyber systems, but it can also be a financial risk, a reputational risk, an ability to deliver mission risk, and not just something that will affect software. It's not an isolated uh, yes, phenomenon. It's, it's, it's part of the whole portfolio of risks that, that an agency would have. Yeah, that, that true also, Pat, at, at DHA? Yes, absolutely. So um, the, the network and cyber intelligence is you know, works closely with the DNI and, and mm -hmm. overarching intelligence and operations. And it, in fact, they actually treat the, the, um, the cyber attack surface as um, an operational theater. Okay, well, yeah, so it makes sense. And uh, in that vein, you have an example of where a commercial contractor found something and brought it to you that was kind of historic. Yeah, so kind of back to that first question. It's not just about the things you own. It requires um, close coordination, formal agreements, kind of the playbook that you were describing, with your commercial partners. And so if you recall the WannaCry virus last year, so the first actual copy of the virus came from one of our contractors. I mean, they, they called us up and said, there's a problem, we've seen this, and they, they gave the first copy in, in the United States to us, to the FBI and to the DOD. It was a pretty small file, wasn't it? Uh, I don't know, <laughs> probably. How do they find it, do we know? Or? So um, they overseas found it, mm -hmm. and then sent it to the United States so that we could be on the lookout for it. All right, in this context of decision-making, say a WannaCry hits, and remedies are developed. To what degree are the agencies looking at autonomy in response, which is the opposite of a decision process tree that you both described? Uh, Tony, why don't we ask you first, is this a trend that you're seeing you know, across the customer base of the desire for tools to become more than just Alerter, alerting mechanisms, but also responsive mechanisms. Absolutely, and I think uh, uh, Mark had alluded to this earlier, and just there's there's so much information, and just you're never going to be able to throw enough people at that challenge. And we can talk later on about the, the challenge in general from a cybersecurity perspective around recruiting the good people and finding good people. But regardless of that, you're never going to have enough to manage the types of data that the Mark and Pat's organizations and others have to deal with. So, having automated techniques to to help manage that and to a certain extent even through uh, process automation, help uh, our artificial intelligence, you know, helping make some of those decisions for the technician is going to be critical. And, and I think the key would be, uh, it, it, there's, 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 Mark talked about this earlier, there's so many tools out there, very capable tools, but at the end of the day, there, there's also many examples where there's a lot of tools that maybe organizations either aren't using the full benefit of or, or taking advantage of all the capabilities or there's sometimes a trend to just get the next shiny thing in terms of a tool or a capability. So I think tying it back to making sure that you're getting the right tools in, using those tools to the full benefit, and tying that all into that governance and enterprise risk management process that we talked about earlier, I think is essential. But there's no, there's no question you're going to, we're going to, as, a, as an industry from a cyber perspective, we need to get better at automating a lot of these capabilities. Yeah, it seems like sometimes the tools are designed to sell more tools <laughs> and, and layer them on there. Uh, Mark, is that is automation part of your? Strategy for the future? Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I bring, if, if, if AI is part of that, artificial intelligence, you might want to discuss that too. But otherwise, what about automation? Yeah, definitely. I, I think Pat and Tony um, make, make some very good points here. One of our strategies at USAID is, is to, in, in terms of our cyber program, is to automate as, as much as possible. Um, that it would be things like levering uh, cybersecurity automation and, and orchestration strategies. 
um, particularly at the cloud level. Um, you know, we're all, we're all um, you know, we, we know uh, Vivek Kunder's uh, cloud-first philosophy from seven, eight years ago. The government's moving heavily in that direction. USAID has moved heavily in that direction. So we're looking to, uh, to address today's cyber threats in real time and free up our analysis time, you know, you know valuable human resource time um, to address more advanced threats than currently face the, the federal government. Specifically, we're looking at uh, leveraging things like artificial intelligence, uh, blockchain and other distributed ledger uh, technology solutions, machine learning technologies. An example would be um, um, log analysis. Um, you can, um, a, a, an agency could, an agency or any other organization could literally have billions of, of log events to look through um, before, during, and after an event. And, and we believe, and I, I, I think there's a lot of, you know, um, uh, kind of commercial activity in this area, um, that, that there's um, some very good automated solutions that can really make a dent in that problem, make a serious dent in that problem to free up people to, to do other things rather than, rather than the kind of like the very manual process of going through millions and billions of logs, which, which, which you know, as, as Tony mentioned, you just, you, you just, there just aren't enough people to throw out that problem type you know, of thing. So that's, also that, could save you some storage too. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So those, that's, that's one example. Um, so yeah, we, 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 are, we are very aggressively looking at, at automation and, and how, that can, how that can play a, a role in this. Our, the, basically our agency, because we're so spread out and, and because of the, the nature of the work we do, we were one of the, one of the earlier adopters of, of um, cloud technology. We have, ver we have very little, uh, if any, we have virtually no legacy systems in place. So we're, we're and, 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 and we try to push the envelope in terms of innovation, so we're, we're aggressively looking at, at, at automation in terms of our cyber program. Okay, how about DHA? <coughs> automation, I guess, is, could be a two-edged sword in a, in a medical situation. Right, and so I want more of it. Absolutely, I want more of it. I want artificial intelligence because the process we have now is absolutely human intensive. You know, manual um, risk management framework evaluations of controls for all the devices that we have in, in you know across the military health system takes time. And um, if there were a, a way to automate that, that was certified for mm -hmm. use in the DoD environment, because we are we have very very strict rules about mm -hmm. how we do this. But I think that 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 that's really my number one wish for, for, for what we need going forward to do this. And do those capabilities exist at this point? So there are some things, I'm not naming names, but there are two products that I've seen that are very exciting to me, um, but, and, and I know one of them is being piloted right now with the Defense Information Systems Agency, and so I'm hopeful for some of that. But, you know, back to the, the, the beauty and the, the good things that come from formal agreements, formal playbooks, is that when you're going to change something like this, it's, it takes, it's, it's a slow process because everything has to be formally changed so that there are no seams and gaps as you, you know, straddle changing from one technology to another. Seems and like there's a way to maybe not automate that, but at least computer rev it up so that a book becomes something you can move the boxes around in a process flow. Right. And so things like in the Department of Defense, you know, we have two-factor authentication, we have uh, common access cards, right? And so any new technology has to work with the common access cards. Right? And so, and all the other things that we have. And so that's, um, those solutions have to be architected, tested, validated, tested again, mm -hmm. patched, fixed, and then we put them out there. But I'm hopeful that sometime in the next you know, 12 to 18 months, we'll get some, some, uh, some movement on some of these new AI-based tools. Yeah, it's been about three years since a former defense CIO said it's time to get rid of the cat card. So that probably means you've got another seven years or so on it. <laughs> if I could, before, Tom, before we leave the, the topic of automation, I realize it's not necessarily threat intelligence oriented, but we've already alluded a couple times to the risk management framework process, the RMF process, and I just wanted to emphasize how I think automating that process could be so beneficial in a lot of ways because whether in the, in the threat intelligence concept, mm -hmm. the systems and the, and, the, and the networks that are supporting that capability, if you can work a more efficient process through and get that system through the RMF process and accredited, it would just, again, there's just not enough people to throw at the RMF process as it is currently 
constituted. So automating that whole RMF process, I think, is, is it's, it's definitely an area that's ripe for automation, no question. Yeah, is there capability now to do that automation? Out there, if I could, if I could just add to, to, to the past sure. two speakers, I, I want I'm in, I'm in total agreement. The, the the amount of resources the federal government devotes to the you know the, the you know the uh, security uh, assessment authorization process to get an ATO for a system, it's 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 really that I think that's an area that's that it's ripe for innovation, if you will, um, and and you know I go back to kind of the. Uh, you know the the old saying. You know, if you can uh, conceive it and, and, and believe it, you can achieve it. The, I don't. We've not seen, a, as of this point, an automated tool that, that right now that, mm -hmm. that 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 we want to that we want to buy that will will automate the um, ATO process. We do believe that one's going to come, and, and when it's there, USAID would would, would love to, to purchase it because because there's there is an excessive amount of, of, mm -hmm. of cycles devoted to authorizing these si systems, even with even with the uh, continuous monitoring program. So, I think that's another area where where automation can make a huge dent and and and, and lead lead to efficiencies. You know, one of the common um, themes throughout federal government IT is do more with less. And, and and this is this is definitely an area where, where, where that can be done, and and I, I would venture that you know five years from now, if we have the same panel, we'll, we'll we'll be talking about the the various solutions that have been implemented to do this. We'll have it five months from now. We don't need to wait five <laughs> years. But you mentioned the ATO, and you mentioned FedRAMP, which was conceived to kind of speed up ATO of cloud providers, and now it's really extended to a lot of services and software packages are also going through FedRAMP that might be cloud deployed, so it's not just a cloud facility anymore process. And so I wanted to pull on that string a little bit too, because you mentioned cloud. I mean, does cloud, and every agency is pursuing it pretty much now, does it increase security? Does it decrease it by increasing the number of attack surfaces? Or how does the, how does the tool set, the development of threat intelligence get morphed, I guess, by cloud deployment? I mean, there's a number of advantages of, of, uh, of cloud. Um, the, the, your overall operations costs go way down. There's fewer, there's, there's fewer servers to maintain, you know, because of virtualization and so forth. Um, there's uh, data center uh, drops, and it, it's sort of like you know, the, the, you know, uh, alchemy, and that you're changing, you're changing capex and the opex uh, with, with you know, your payments mm -hmm. to the cloud provider. So, there, the, the. Um, there's a reason that that you know cloud computing has taken off for for a lot of very good technological and a lot of very sound business reasons. So, um, and the, while the jury is still out on the security, I think there are uh, you know a, a, a number of benefits also to, to to cloud computing for from security and you know uh, a single single point of failure, if you will, and so forth, uh, reduce attack surface and things like that. Um, and again, I think I think if we, you know if we go back to the, to, to the playbook idea, which 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 uh, you know Pat and Tony have talked about, I think you know if the processes are in place, and and you know there's a sound cybersecurity program in place, and we have the right cyber threat intelligence and all these all these elements of of a good program, uh, I think cloud cloud will, will work fine, just as good or better than 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 the old way where mm -hmm. where you know. Agencies had these massive data centers and lots of servers and lots of people to maintain them on a round-the-clock basis. Just get your service level agreements right. That, yes. That's the point I was just going to make in terms of governance around, because I agree with everything Mark said, but the governance around that, making sure you've got good, tight service level agreements, uh, as applicable third-party assessments, SOC 1 type of reports and processes to make sure that those providers are doing what they need to do from a controls and perspective. And I think the, the, the key theme is that oftentimes you hear, well, we're going to outsource our, our data, it, 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 but you're not really outsourcing your data. That is still your data. You might be outsourcing the mechanics around processing and storage, but it's right. still ultimately your data as an agency. And I think that's critical to make sure that, that you, you understand and maintain the ownership of that and the accountability around that. And it's probably fair to say the cloud providers have a pretty strong interest of their own business in maintaining security, because if Absolutely. they don't do that, then yeah. nobody would, they'd be out of business. Certainly. And so, uh, I can, I'll just talk just the medical part of this, because medical's a little bit different, right? Mm -hmm. Because you have, um, I, I think the state of the art right now, because in hospitals you have all these devices, right? And many of them require on-prem um, servers and stacks, right? So there's no way around. So I think the state of the art is um, 
on-prem support for those medical devices, on-prem support for VDI, right? And then uh, enterprise applications um, like your electronic health record migrated to the cloud, and that's exactly what we're doing. I mean, we have a cloud commercial cloud. We bought a commercial product. It's being hosted in their commercial cloud with with um, in a hybrid way when there's a special DoD part. But we do actually um, share some services with the commercial side, um, and then of course uh, we rely on commercial partners for things like pharmacy and stuff sure. like that. Yeah, I guess I can imagine the day when there's a cloud instance of the controller for a surgical remote control machine. That could be a little scary, I guess, huh? So the, 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 the scary thing for me right now is telehealth. Right? So telehealth is this very broad, you know, where they want to use cameras to remotely right. see patients and um, a lot of devices associated with it, and it's new, and so it has to be ATO'd, and um, it involves... Uh, communications networks so that that's there's a lot going on in that front okay good place to take a break our guests today are Pat Flanders chief information officer at the Defense Health Agency Mark Johnson is chief information security officer at the US Agency for International Development Tony Hubbard is a principal at KPMG I'm your moderator Tom Temin this panel discussion is threat intelligence tackling the cyber arms race in government sponsored by KPMG here on federalnewsradio.com and Federal News Radio 1500 a.m. Innovation. Everyone says it. At KPMG, we know actions speak louder than words. For over 100 years, KPMG has helped federal agencies adapt to changing times with innovative approaches. Today, we're helping agencies advance in areas like cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, blockchain, cognitive analytics, and secure cloud. Let our past experience help propel your future forward more quickly and with greater agility and efficiency. Become future ready with KPMG. Visit futureadygovernment.com. Welcome back to our panel discussion, Threat Intelligence Tackling the Cyber Arms Race in Government, sponsored by KPMG, here on federalnewsradio.com and Federal News Radio 1500 AM. My guests today are Mark Johnson, Chief Information Security Officer at the U.S. Agency for International Development, Tony Hubbard is a principal at KPMG, and Pat Flanders is Chief Information Officer at the Defense Health Agency. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. And let's talk about a little bit uh, of something that every government agency has, and that is suppliers and vendors. And they are part of your ecosystem. You exchange not only goods and money with them, but also data. And so what are some of the issues with respect to cybersecurity of the supply chain or just cybersecurity of those that you do business with that, uh, that hold, in some cases, data that is governmental data? Mark, you want to? Yeah, thanks, Tom. I, I think that's th this is a very important issue, and, and there's a lot of attention being given to it, particularly government-wide. Again, o OMB and DHS are focusing on this very heavily. They're giving a lot of, lot of uh, guidance and, and directives to agencies. And I think a good example of this was, was one that, that came out last fall. Um, DHS and OMB um, gave, gave a, a mandate. Uh, through a binding operational directive to all agencies to rid their networks of, of Kaspersky software. Right, yeah. So the interesting thing from that was was that it, it was it was a clear supply chain issue. This the Kaspersky software is is um, is and has been used by many agencies for many years, and 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 additionally, as the order came out and, and agencies began implementing it, th there was supplemental guidance needed to be to, to be given because there were there were other softwares. That folks are you that agencies are using that had as subcomponents Kaspersky software. So it was it was like peeling back the layers of an onion. So supply chain is very embedded in everything we do, and 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 the, and the um, emphasis on it is, is is quite important. I think that um, contract clauses are, are are a must, and that's that's something which is which is going to be I think more and more prevalent as we move into the future. Specific uh, contract clauses that that uh, both both the procurement departments and the, and the, and the, the IT departments and and the suppliers themselves become more aware of that as you, as you mentioned the whole ecosystem knows that hey th these are the rules of the game and, 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 and this is this is what we have to be aware of as as part of our process of doing business yeah and Pat in addition to the regular suppliers of electronics and so forth and computers you've got medical devices and what are some of the trends in ensuring medical device security right so um, two things um, Medical device security is a function of both the network and the actual hygiene of the device. Mm -hmm. And so, um, again, 
taking over the service medical networks um, because we don't have AI yet that can do this for us. We've come up with I think is a pretty um, uh, a pretty unique um, isolation architecture, right? That consists of 12 zones. It's just VLANs, um, but we're now standardizing them across the network and all the medical facilities so that vendors can build to the 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 configuration of the VLAN and inherit controls and speed up that ATO process. So that's one thing. Then the separate thing is um, our other problem is they're just, we own, there's so much variance in the number of devices we have. And so we're standing up a, uh, a material management center um, for devices this coming year that will put together a catalog and mm -hmm. we'll try to beat out some of the variance of this, right? Sure. Do you work with VA or any or Tricare or any of these uh, systems? So Tricare extensively with Tricare, and then back to the contract discussion, right? So there's there's um, the DoD has different rules for um, if you're operating a system on behalf of the DoD or if you're um, using our data in your system, right? So it's DoD 800-173 versus. Mm -hmm. um, 8510.01, and so, the, and that specifies very specific things that you need to do, um, and the extent to which our information security managers review your commercial, um, in some cases the actual structure, in some cases your security plan. So we're in pretty deep in all those things, and um, I, every year we add more things to that. So and and commercial industries coming along with us. So. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what, what does it look like government-wide? Again, we'll go to you, Tony, on the, on the whole. Yeah, just to build on what Pat said, certainly the, the 800-171 requirements and other special publication requirements from this, I think, was obviously a good step, and, and those requirements are now yeah, building on 853 in terms of just having a good, solid set of security controls in place. And, and I know DOD is in the process of doing more regular assessments around the 800-171 compliance from its contractor community. So I think that's all very positive and just provides another uh, just more uh, rigor and governance around the whole process. Uh, so very productive in my mind. And earlier we spoke about receiving threat intelligence from various sources. What if you are the originator of threat intelligence that might happen in an agency, like that contractor showed you WannaCry? How do you broadcast that to all to the government? Because this whole sharing mechanism has gotten to be a pretty complicated apparatus over the past 10 years or so. With regard to pick up the phone and call. Sure, yeah. With, with regard to USAID, we, we I mean, we're, we're very, we feel very fortunate. We, we have a very strong relationship with Department of Homeland Security. They, they provide a lot of really good services. You know, we, we talked about CDM, and, and then I, I think, you know, there's Einstein. There's a lot of U.S. CERT. Um, great organization, um, and, and, and also, you know, OMB. We work very closely with them. So we would, um, uh, if, if we would, be in that situation, we, we, we would report to the appropriate uh, channels at, at DHS, and, and, and they would they would then uh, make sure that it got to the other agencies. Have yeah. you ever discovered anything? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> <laughs> right. we'll, we'll see it on the sharing network. Pat? Yeah, absolutely. We've discovered things. Um, and so, we, you know, there's a very formal reporting process um, in the DOD for how we do this. And, I mean, immediately our Cyber Operations Center notifies the entire military health network. Um, through, through and our commercial um, partners um, who, who do business with us. But then uh, that goes to JFQ Doden and then from DOD uh, into the CERT and, and uh, DHS. All right, let me ask this. Let's take a look in the future. What would you like your whole cybersecurity apparatus to look like, especially, again, concentrating on knowledge through threat intelligence? What would you like to see a year from now or two years from now that is maybe missing from the whole picture at this point. Here's AI, your chance. AI as the enabler for less um, people doing RMF manually. That's that's it. And if you had the same payroll, let's say, enabled by artificial intelligence, what could those people do alternatively? Um, well, so <laughs> I would see this as an efficiency so that we could use it to do, you know, other things with the money, you know, other innovative things. Like surgery. Surgery and um, uh, telehealth and, and some of the things that we, you know, cutting edge things. There's lots of research in the medical, mm -hmm. um, in, in the medical area.
Okay. Yeah, I, I would agree with Pat. Um, I, I think the discussion that, that we've had here today, a lot of the discussion's been around um, automation, artificial intelligence, um, use of innovative technologies. We, we, would, we would also, as, as uh, you know, Pat, Pat's organization, I'm so sure Tony would say the same thing, he'd like to see that throughout the federal government, see a higher degree of automation um, and, and free up, free up the, the human effort to do higher value added uh, tasks, uh, analysis of data, um, a lot of the things, uh, a lot of folks that, that, that work in the cyber field in the government have, have you know, great certifications, just phenomenal backgrounds. And I think this will give us a chance for people to use use, use more of the higher value, higher level uh, value add skills they have, um, rather than sort of sort of what, what I would call sort of like the, the the manual work. Yeah, I imagine that in when it comes to cybersecurity, the workforce is in some ways analogous to the programming workforce, where if all they do is program, they can become obsolete and uh, new languages come on, new technologies, new methodologies come into this from time to time and you don't want to be stuck with a workforce that's not up to date. So is that part of the part of the puzzle here? Yeah, you just, thanks for, thanks for bringing that up and, and, and I think that will also, for all three of our organizations, solve, solve an issue of the, the, the huge cyber workforce shortage. I think if we, um, can bring greater automation, um, leverage uh, new technologies. I think that we'll be able, we will be able to do more with less, and and it, it'll make it won't totally solve the issue. It, it, it'll help ameliorate the issue where we, we right now we're facing a huge shortage of, uh, in terms of the number of people that do cybersecurity work as X and, and the available amount of people by by all estimates is is a, uh, uh, some fraction of that X. Sure. Tony, what's your view of where agencies ought to be strategizing? Uh, well, I think all those points are, are excellent, and I, and I agree 100%. So I think there's no question the automation piece is critical. And I think I'll go back to one of the initial points we talked about is tying it back to the, to the people and the example I gave where a, a federal CISA was frustrated with the level of threat information slash intelligence that he was getting. And, and I think so as we continue to get more folks hopefully recruiting into the cybersecurity industry and, and hopefully recognizing that it, it, you don't necessarily need to have a technology degree to be successful in cybersecurity, especially if you're in the threat intelligence analysis world. It's more about, obviously you need to have some understanding, but it's more of a natural curiosity and mm -hmm. trying to diagnose what a potential situation might be. But the most important element to the example I gave with the federal CISO is communication because what happens is you can't just get in a room of executives uh, like Pat and Mark and talk about bits and bytes and this vulnerability and that vulnerability. You need to really be able to communicate what that means to the organization and what is the real risk to the organization. And I think that's something that as we all kind of work in this industry, just collectively doing a better job of just elevating the conversation up to more a risk-based conversation versus just a technical bit and bite conversation I think is critical. And what about your top leadership in your agencies? Are you getting the support you need from them and you know what can they do to enable this whole process? Because sometimes to them it looks like just something in the tech shop and maybe they don't always realize the systemic risk that we talked about earlier that these cyber threats really pose. No, I think um, probably for the last three years um, there's been a big change in the amount of emphasis from the top. Um, the deputy secretary started a, a monthly cyber scorecard. Um, you know, it's metrics that he looks at. I mean, just recently, I think he now has passed that on to the DOD CIA, but he personally did it. Um, for our electronic health record implementation, the DOD CIO personally took over as the AO. It used to be my office. And so the DOD CIO took that over just because it was that important. Mm -hmm. We meet with the DOD CIO every other week in person with the other fourth estate CIOs and uh, the commander of uh, DISA. Um, and uh, there's just, there's a lot of, there are a lot of eyes on cyber in the DOD. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, would, I would agree with that. We're, we're getting excellent attention from, from our top leadership on cybersecurity, on, on you know, the related discipline, privacy, and, and that's, that, that's very gratifying. And, and you know, I think Tony made a great point. I think throughout, throughout government, uh, I would imagine throughout the private sector too, I, I think there's a, there's a huge opportunity for us as people who work in the field to, to make sure that, that, that we couch our, um, 
you know, the information we communicate in terms, in more business terms and in, in strictly technological terms. Because these, at the end of the day, these risk management issues are, are business issues that, that will, will affect the business of the agency or of the organization as a whole. And, and yes, it's, it's been, it's been we, we get excellent attention from our top leadership at, at, at USAID. And recently the Trump administration came out with an executive order and trying to elevate the CIO role. We have a CISO and a CIO here. And of course, this goes back to 1996. I, was, I remember the announcement of the passage of Klinger Cohen. I was there. And so here we are still trying to get CIOs into the right saddle and by extension CISOs. Uh, do you feel that you have the empowerment to really drive the cybersecurity and threat intelligence uh, reaction properly in your agencies? Yes, and so October 1st of this year, in accordance with um, the 2017 NDAA, um, the Defense Health Agency takes over management of the, right. the, the treatment facilities and budget authority, and I review and all of the infrastructure. And all of their infrastructure, right. There's actually a, there's a little time phase for the actual networks to be moved, but I, I will have eyes on all of the budget, and in FY20, um, I will have control of the entire IT budget for the medical health system. And so, yes, so the right things are happening. Yeah, and at uh, yeah, the USAID? Definitely, definitely. We're, we're supportive of the executive order. We're supportive of any legislation that helps us implement the appropriate risk management strategy from the highest levels of the organization on down. So yes, we, we definitely think, think the executive order is good. We support it and, and, and we, we think it's very helpful at USAID. And, and you know, we're, we're certain throughout the, the federal government, it'll, it'll, it'll you know, give cybersecurity um, more, um, how, how can I say, elevated importance in, in terms of risk management throughout the agencies. Okay, on that note, we come to a conclusion. We're out of time. I want to thank today's guest, Pat Flanders, as Chief Information Officer at the Defense Health Agency. Mark Johnson as Chief Information Security Officer at the U.S. Agency for International Development. And Tony Hubbard is a principal at KPMG. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. You've been listening to Federal News Radio 1500 AM. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsradio.com. Use the search term KPMG. Thank you for listening to Threat Intelligence, tackling the cyber arms race in government panel, sponsored by KPMG on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. The entire discussion can be found on demand at federalnewsradio.com slash KPMG.